Welcome to episode 50 of the UK Sports Chat podcast. I'm Joe Williams and in today's episode I speak with Stuart. Stuart is a sports therapist of over 30 years. He's from All About Balance UK and it's the third in our series of podcasts with Stuart. Stuart is the UK distributor of Barefoot Science Insoles, an in-shoe training system that strengthens your feet and improves your balance from the instant you fit them into your shoes. In this, in, in this episode, we cover injury advice and questions taken from the UK Run Chat community. As usual, please send us your feedback on our social channels or you can get in touch on info at ukrunchat.co.uk. Have a great week and see you on the next episode. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Nice to, nice to chat again, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yes, I'm actually having a few days off, and so uh, I'm refreshed. Good, very nice. Always good, <laughs> always good, and always good to have a few days off. Yeah. So, wait, what have you been up to since we last spoke? I think our last podcast was the end of August, start of September. I think you were heading off to Run Fest Run and yes. the Running Expo. Did you? Yeah, um, I had the two events. Yeah, I did the Run Run Fest Run down at um, Laverstoke Park. Mm-hmm. Um, which was interesting. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, one of the first events back after lockdown. Yes. Um, you know, the, the organisers worked pretty hard to try and get the numbers up and they combined it, in fact, with Carfest. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously both both shows are Chris Evans' um, babies. And it, it kind of wasn't as well attended as I hoped it would be. And I think as, as, as the other exhibitors felt the same, but there, there's some good quality people came along to the stands and we, we had some great engagement, um, sold quite a few pairs of insoles, which was great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the big bonus, apart from that, of course, was meeting Colin Jackson and Jamie Bulsh. I had a absolute nice. delight. I, yeah. I, I remember seeing your photo on Twitter, actually. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, you know, meeting, meeting uh, both of those guys, but I mean, Colin in particular, you know, as a, as a sports fan, and a, a, I was a sprinter more than a long distance runner. Watching Colin Jackson competing over the years was like poetry in motion. Yeah, uh, he was he was wonderful, wasn't he? Yeah, I did point out to him that barefoot science insoles may have helped him achieve great things. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't he didn't seem to appreciate that. But, um... <laughs> he, he didn't do bad, did he? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. God, dear me. But yeah, so that was great. Um, and then we went on to. The National Running Show South at Farnborough, mm-hmm. Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, again, you know, the organisers you know, worked really, really hard at getting getting the numbers up. You know, they openly admitted that the numbers were lower than they would have hoped for. But obviously, mm-hmm. under the circumstances, were pretty good. And we actually had some great engagement. I, um, I spoke on the running skills stage both mornings yep. um, about contact time and running efficiency and the importance of balance in that function and uh, had some really really good engagement and a load of fun as well i got um i got people up on the stage both both mornings doing my little one-legged balance tests yeah and um and marching on the spot and of course as you know because i've done these on you yeah. both involve closing your eyes and uh i have to say there was um there was a moment of sort of almost classic um, comedy where I've got these guy and a girl marching on the spot with their eyes closed. And I turned around to the audience and I was saying how, you know, we're doing this and how brave it is for these people to do this without the aid of a safety net. And I turned around and saw the guy flying forwards straight towards the front of the stage because <laughs> <laughs> he completely lost any awareness of where he was in space and he was literally sort of marching forwards quite quickly so I had to had to leap across and uh, and stop him before he plummeted to injury which i don't think would have gone down very well but it was a very graphic example of how when you take the eyes out of the equation you become more reliant or totally reliant on your the information coming out from the soles of your feet through your shoes yes which is the whole essence of what our insoles are about, which is providing proprioceptive stimulus from within the shoe to tell your body what's going on around you. And, you know, whilst we don't run with our eyes closed, um, when we run, we're not using our eyes to to help us balance. So we're using them to to look ahead uh, for potential hazards or obstacles, you know, whether it's trail running with tree roots and 
yeah. potholes in the roads over there, you know, pedestrians and other runners and whatever it might be. Yeah. So it was. It's a very very useful test as a as sort of an example of how we become hugely reliant on our eyes to help us. Yeah. And um, how inefficient the proprioceptive system from the sole of our feet can become. And uh, that and the, the one-legged balance test sort of demonstrate the same thing. So that was that was good fun. And I saw loads and loads of people on the stands and um, did did those tests. And yes. my little stepping gate test on the stand about 45 times, I think. And of those 45 times, what was really interesting, actually, for, for, for us was that pretty much everyone that came on the stand had a problem, an injury of some sort. Yeah. Um, whether it was Achilles tendonitis or shin splints or plantar fasciitis or hip pain, yeah, it was sort of knee runner's knee obviously is a classic. You know, there, there was there was almost almost without exception, people had these injuries and they've been niggling injuries that've been going on for a while, or some people have been unable to to run. They've had to stop running because of them. Mm-hmm. And what we do when when I then put them through my little ground force reaction test which is when you see what happens to the foot as it lands on the floor and then what happens to the shin and the knee and the thigh and the hip yes uh, you see these unusual patterns that, that explain why the injuries are occurring and then what i do in the in that demonstration is i then pop the barefoot science insole underneath the foot and retest and what we see in every single case and i've done thousands of these now in my clinic and on this stand is that the body reverts to correct function. Um, the yeah. foot starts to manage its landing better as it goes into pronation. And then it, uh, when you step through, the foot goes nicely into, into supination. And the shin and the thigh and the hip and the knee do the things that the body's designed for them to do within, within reasons. You know, there's no, no two people are exactly the same, but there are certain rules that we're looking for of movement patterns. And we see that changing. We see it changing for the positive every time. And of the 43 tests I did, I think 40 people bought insoles. So that was a fantastic um, example of the benefit that that little test can show. Yes. Well, that was really good fun. Really good fun, yeah. So just to go back to your gentleman on the stage, you started marching forward. So his instruction mm. was to march on the spot. Yes. And because he's got his eyes closed and he and and his proprioception isn't, um, isn't telling him to stay on the spot. He kind of loses where he is. Is that is that yes, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the proprioceptive nerve system is is a system that's embedded in our soft tissues right throughout the body from head to toe. And when we move, our tissues move, and that movement of tissue sort of agitates the nerves that are in, embedded in them, the proprioceptive sensory nerves that are embedded in them. So. It tells us where we are in space relative to things around us. So if you're having one of those days where you're tripping over things or bumping into things or dropping things, that system's not working very well. It also helps manage our balance. It's one of the three uh, parts of our body system that manage balance, along with our eyes and our a bit of our inner ear called the vestibular. And the point, again, for when we're running is we can't use our eyes and we can't, and our ears are working really hard as we're heads moving around and we're bobbing along and looking around for things. So our ears are working hard in lots of different ways. So we become significantly more reliant on the landing of our feet on the ground mm-hmm. to read the ground conditions and feed that information back. Now that's the same whether you're marching on the spot or whether you're standing on one leg or whether you're running or walking. We need the feet to read the ground to tell us where we are in space and to tell us how to balance and manage our body. And the third thing the proprioceptive system does is control something called the stretch reflex. Okay. Uh, stretch reflex is our uh, gift to injury avoidance. And um, as our foot hits the floor, the bottom of the foot should stretch and manage the foot's movement into pronation. Similarly, when our glutes engage, they push the hip forward, which stretches the hip flexor. Mm-hmm. But we don't want that to overstretch. If we're throwing a stick for the dog, we don't want our arm to go flying out of the socket with a stick. We want the brakes to be put on to manage that stretch. Mm-hmm. And that's what the proprioceptive system does. It controls that through the stretch reflex to stop us getting injured and say, okay, put the brakes on. So it's hugely important for those different areas. And the marching on the spot test 
eyes open, you start off, you stay on the spot because you can see things, you know, you know where you are. Yes. You take the eyes out of the equation and it reveals how effective the proprioceptive system is. And in that chap's case, it was, it was pretty disastrous. <laughs> Naturally, I've, I've, I've put out, um, I'm hoping he might even be listening. His name is Simon. Um, and if he does listen to this podcast, I've put a post out on the National Running Show Facebook and Instagram and put it out on our Facebook channel. It's to say, Simon, give me a shout. I want to give him a pair of insoles um, as a thank you for being such a fantastic guinea pig and to help him because he had the most unusual problems with coordination so his feet and his legs and his arms were doing completely different things yeah um instead of we having that nice sort of opposite arm opposite leg movement that we should have when we walk and run his arms were doing one thing and his legs were doing something completely different so you know his system his brain needs some better information coming to it to help manage his body better yes and uh so simon if you're out there no, call yeah me. come on simon <laughs> This for me. It's palsy for you. To help, to help. I'm probably going to get 50 calls from from different Simon. Now, <laughs> uh, it's it's very interesting how this all starts at the feet, and I'm I, sorry, I'm, I'm conscious. We're, I know we said in the intro we were going to do some more generic stuff, but this is really interesting. So it's um, it's interesting how how fixing that starts at the feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. Um, and I suppose the point, the, again, the way to describe it is that our foot, when we're walking or running or playing any sport that's a, you know, an, an upright sport that requires us to move on our feet, they're the only thing actually in contact with a firm surface, with the ground, through the sole of the shoe, that can give us that spatial awareness, that visit, that information, all of the time. Our eyes are working hard to follow a ball if we're playing a, a ball sport. As I say, if we're running, they're looking ahead, scanning around. If we're in a race, they're looking at competitors, looking at the ground ahead, looking at you know whatever's going on around them. Um, and the ears have been bombarded with information if you're playing a you know a game, if it's rugby or hockey or whatever it might be, netball. Mm-hmm. There's lots of noise going along, so so the brain's been bombarded with all of this information from our senses. And it's, it's the job of the feet to give as much information as possible to the brain about how to manage movement safely and efficiently. Yes. And that's through that proprioceptive nerve system. So, yeah, so it starts with the feet when we're moving. Interesting stuff. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let, let's move into some of the questions that we've had from community members on, the, on Twitter. So we started a bit of a thread last night because we said we'd do this, didn't we? And, um, yeah. and then I've got some other questions on some of the stuff that we spoke about on the last podcast as well. But, um, the So first up, but yeah, we started a thread last night, questions for a physio sports therapist. What, what, what would you ask? Um, first one was at what stage would you see a physio? IE I've had a pain niggle for X amount of time. Do I wait and rest it for a bit or do I see someone straight away? Um, I would say, well, for the first thing that people should do straight away is get some ice on something, follow the basic rules of, of the rice principle which is rest ice compression and elevation so if you've strained something or pulled something or torn something uh, or even whacked something on you know whacked a knee on something as you've been out mm-hmm. the best thing you can do very quickly as soon as possible is to get ice on it yeah and the swelling elevate it and rest it okay um, the general rule is is that you you would do that for um the first 44 first 48 hours you would stick with ice and then you can move gradually towards heat as things improve. How, how long would you ice it for, and how often um, in that forty-eight hours? On a on a on, as a general rule, sort of ten to fifteen minutes of ice. Yeah. And if you can do that in an ideal world, and I know that we don't live in an ideal world, but if you could do that every two to three or three to four hours, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you can do it more regularly than, than than once a day, it's better than none. You know, it, it, it's. It's just simply what you can fit in. I mean, I say to people in clinic, stick an ice pack on at breakfast, stick an ice pack on at dinner time, you yes. know, stick one on just before you go to bed. And if there's a chance during your working day, and at the moment, obviously, with lots more people working at home, it's a bit easier. But uh, get that ice on there, 10 to 15 minutes. If it's if it's a hamstring or a big quad muscle or a hamstring or a glute that you think you're torn, you might need to keep it on slightly longer because they're, you know, obviously you've got to get the ice down. If you leave ice on for too long, Mm-hmm. what happens so what, what happens with ice is it literally numbs the area it knocks the nerves out so they can't send or receive signals okay. so consequently then the muscles that have gone into spasm have to let go because they've not been given any instruction to do anything other than that so hopefully they'll relax and as i say you numb the nerves and you also constrict the blood vessels so you can't leak 
um, blood or fluids into the surrounding tissues to cause swelling. So that's the initial purpose of ice to get it on there. Okay. Um, but at some point, you need to reintroduce heat to bring fresh blood to the area as the, as the system, as your you know, your tissues heal. Yes. And they bring with them all the nutrients to help with the healing process. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Okay. There's some big old bags of peas needed for quad muscles yeah, and that, bag, bag of peas. <laughs> I mean, you can get you can get um all of these there's there's loads of different uh ice packs that you can buy now flexible ones that you just keep in the freezer yeah and then if you need them as a heat pack you just stick them in the microwave or whatever okay you can also get what i suggested to my um clients over the years is if they're going to an event there may not be the facility to keep an ice pack cold enough but you can get these disposable single-use ones where it's basically a you know some sort of plastic bag with two different types of material in there with this with the inner the inner bag and when you when you sort of break that inner bag by hitting or twisting the uh, the whole thing it releases the two chemicals and they react with each other to produce cold so you know my suggestion to all, all athletes all runners and sports people is have a couple of those in your kit bag so that if you do get an injury you can get that ice on there as quickly as possible. And mm-hmm. that can make a huge difference between a quick return and, you know, a longer return. I remember years and years ago, there was some research done showing that if you got, if you sprained an ankle, if you've got an ice pack on within, you know, within minutes, it could be the difference between, uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks and six weeks out. Uh, wow. that, that important, yeah. yeah. So that's why we see, you know, we watch the, the football on the telly or we see different sports. The guy who's gone off injured, or the girl that's gone off injured, will be then sitting at pitch side on the, in the dugout with a, a nice pack strapped to them. Straight away, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm. Um, so the, so the compression and elevation bit, then, yeah. So talk us through compression on a sprain or something like that. So I, I, I have a memory. I would have been about twelve or thirteen years old, and I can remember doing something to my ankle playing football and getting home, and my mum bandaging my foot up. Yeah. I, and I woke up in the night and just tried to get up, and I, and I couldn't. I couldn't walk. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's because it was the compression was too tight, and my foot was blue. <laughs> we were going to say, did your toe start falling off? And I yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so compression and elevate, and and you know how high is your foot elevated? Is it above your hip? Is it you know? Is it just off the floor? Yeah, I mean, realistically, what what we're trying to do with the elevation thing is to assist the the flow of fluids back towards the um uh the heart so when you when you injure something or tear something and it leaks fluids we need that swelling to be shifted back up the body if you like so if it's in the lower part of the body we've got to get it tracked up now that's going through something called the lymphatic drainage system and the lymphatic drainage system relies on movement um to help create a sort of a pumping action mm-hmm. But obviously, if you're injured, you're not going to be moving so much. So then what we can do is elevate it because gravity will help it. It's not being pumped. You know, blood coming from the heart down through the arteries has been pumped by the heart. The lymph system relies on the muscles contracting and relaxing around it to create a pumping action. So if you're going to be keeping sort of fairly still if after an injury, um, elevating it will provide the, the assistance of gravity. Um, so if it's an ankle injury or a knee injury, you definitely want to get it above the layer, level of the hip if you can mm-hmm. um is the, the basically this is a bit of a simplification but at the bending bits of the body is where you have what are these lymph glands or filter stations um so we want to get the the swelling tracking its way back through the lymphatic drainage system to those filter stations where some of it will get sweated out some of it will get sent off to the kidneys for disposal and some of it will get sent on to the next lymph station the filter station and so on eventually going through in back into the, the heart and the lungs for recirculate or reoxygenation and recirculation. So the elevation will help that. Um, you know, you can maybe, if you haven't got a blood pressure problem, for instance, you can stick a few uh, books or cushions under the foot end of the bed at night, just so while you're asleep, it's at least flowing back in the direction of the heart. Sit on the sofa with your leg up on a, you know, on a stool in front of you while you're watching yeah. the telly and uh, things like that. Uh, compression you can often these days actually there's some great stuff out there for compression and ice at the same time so you have um, systems where you have you fill a, a wrapping with freezing cold water which is attached to a bucket with freezing cold water and when you raise the bucket above the height of the, the wrapping all the cold water flows in provides the cold but also expands that wrapping to compress on the, the knee or the ankle or whatever it might be 
and then you leave it like that for 10 minutes or so and then you pop the bucket down below the layer, uh, level of the knee so all the cold water flows back out so it releases the compression yeah and then a bit later on you lift it back up again and you, and you recreate the cold and the compression so you're you're creating that pumping action of the compression and then the release of compression whilst combining it with the um with the the cold effect of the ice that they, there's they're brilliant those sorts of things mm-hmm. um there's lots of variations of that out there from from, from companies and you know get on the internet yeah you can just track those things down um yeah so that's the, there's some great stuff out there which which we can help us but as i say that the bit about getting the ice on as quickly as possible i think is is really really important and having those disposable ice packs uh, can make a huge difference yeah. You know, immediately after the race, you know, you come out of the race injured or whatever, in the car, sitting on it or wrapping it around your knee with a bit of um, bit of bandaging or you know an old, an old towel or something just to keep the compression on, to keep the ice pack in place, can make a huge difference for you recovering quicker to get back to doing what we all want to do and get out and compete and run and whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. In terms of when to see a physio, going back to the original question. Sorry, I wasn't right. digressing. No, it's there. good. It's good. If, if you. If you do the ice and, and such like, and the swelling hasn't gone and the pain's still there, don't leave it any longer. You know, get an appointment to see a, a sports physio or a sports therapist. Um, and um, you know, if it's, if, it, if it's really bad, you know, at the event and you've heard a, a nasty tear or a crack, even go to you know go to A and E and get it get it checked out sharpish because I've had astonishingly uh, people come to me with ruptured Achilles tendons. Mm. And they've been walking around on them for two or three weeks after the event. Well, I, yeah, I heard a sort of a like a gunshot type noise, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been okay. I've been walking into work every day, and I tested this guy. And there's a very simple test for um, seeing whether the Achilles tendon is still attached, and his wasn't. So yeah, <laughs> you know, so it was astonishing. And of course, by that time, you start, you know, if you leave it too long, the tissues die back, and it makes it makes the healing process a bit of a nightmare. So, so I have a slight confession here, Stuart. Yes, <laughs> I I did exactly that when I um ruptured my Achilles. I th- I thought I thought it, it was my calf that had popped. Right. And I and I did exactly as you described. I walked around for probably four weeks, and I went to A and E eventually and um full full rupture of my achilles yeah. and when they operated they found it up the top of my calf <laughs> it, yeah. it raveled all the way up mm. wow. yeah but i mean that's I'm, I'm at the time you did it was there any swelling or bruising that came out uh it was 2010 i can't remember exactly but i heard it i, I can remember the definite like it was like a gunshot yeah it was like twang yeah. And I thought, oh no, my calf's gone. Um, really, that's really interesting, Joe, because I say there's a, a couple of people I've had this with, and in both cases, like yours, it was this complete rupture. Yeah. And they didn't get huge amounts of swelling or bruising coming out. And I wonder whether if it's that clean, complete tear through, you don't maybe don't get it. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of just hypothesising with this yeah. one, but it'd be interesting to see whether this has happened to other people as well. Because if somebody's had a partial tear. Um, I've seen, you know, the, the swelling can be immense and the bruising can come out. You can see all the all the, the hematoma that's formed, the deep bruising. There. But for these few people I've seen, and, and adding you to it now, um, who have completely ruptured it and then carried on regardless, um, it's almost like it, it it bypassed that's the swelling and bruising stage. It's quite yeah. strange. Yeah, I I mean I I fully recovered from it. I remember it being in the boot for a long time and on the crutches. So perhaps your point about things taking longer um, <laughs> was, was certainly true with that. Cause I can compare it to ACL injuries in the knee and things like that. But um, yeah, by that point I'd had, I'd had two or three ACL injuries and um, I, I was much more disciplined and actually listened to the professional's advice, you know, which a lot of people don't do. They don't stick to the exercises and, and be disciplined with it. And I, and I made a, a full recovery with that particular injury. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. Um, in, very interesting. So the, the next question was, despite warming up properly and copious stretching, I still have one hamstring that gives me grief. What can I do? And I, we, and obviously this is all general advice that Stuart's mm. giving now. We know, we, we know that we can't be specific to people's individual yeah. ailments and injuries. Yeah, mm. I mean, if if you, if you if in a situation like that, if you if you tried stretching it out, you tried loosening it off, 
presumably tried a bit of, bit of strengthening work as well. And if it's still playing up, then there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, obviously I could throw a number of different things at this. It could be coming from the back downwards. So if there's a problem at the bottom of your back in the lumbar spine, it can be pinching on a sciatic nerve. Uh, term, and usually it's what's, what's the L5 S1, the bottom lumbar vertebra. The nerve coming from there goes straight down through the buttock, down the back of the leg, through the hamstring. So if there's an irritation at nerve root level in the buttock, sorry, in the in the spine, it could be what's causing that hamstring to stay tight. Equally, there's a muscle in the buttock that the sciatic nerve either passes through or just under, called the piriformis, and that can pinch on the nerve and irritate it, which could send a, a signal down to the hamstring and cause the hamstring to be still tightening up. So those are some options. In which case, you've got to go and see somebody to get some treatment, mm-hmm. um, see whether check the back out, check the piriformis out. Could be coming from the foot upwards, and of course, this is where you know we major a lot. I treat equally on both ends of it. I always look at both ends of it when people come and see me mm-hmm. to see whether there is something going on with the the, the, the athletes or the person's feet that could be causing a problem mm-hmm. further up the chain that could be reflecting back down again. You know, so there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing with all of this stuff. Yes. So get 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 it checked out. If it's not loosening off with just a bit of general general stretching and and uh, light running then it sounds like it's not going to. There's something else that's causing that. And could be your back, could be the piriformis, could be your feet. Um, get them all checked out. Go get checked. Yeah. Okay. Um, next one was, I occasionally get severe cramp in my inner thighs when running long distance. Once started, it just doesn't stop. Usually triggered when climbing over something or steps that mean raising my upper leg past hip height. Okay. Ooh. Mm. Um, so inner thigh, I'm can be what are called the adductors but i'm guessing from the second part of the description about going up steps it's probably a hip flexor muscle uh, the hip flexors come off the inside edge of the top of the thigh bone and they go right through the hip socket and attach onto all of our lumbar spine it's the, it's the big big muscle there's actually three muscles that form the, the hip flexor group and um, it's actually the only muscle that connects the upper body to the lower body through the pelvis big important muscle for running and walking mm-hmm. um, by any sport really and it's it may be that that's where the problem is it's it's either a weakness in the hip flexor or it's not it's not being stimulated to work correctly mm-hmm. now when we look at running running is a is a posterior chain movement we're looking for the power to come from our glutes and our hamstrings to drive us forward so when the glute fires up to push your hip forward what it should be doing then is, is if that happens, the hip goes forward and the hip flexor gets put into a stretch. And then when you push off with your toes, that's the trigger to release that stretch that you put the hip flexor into mm-hmm. so that it then recoils to help pull the leg through. And the hamstring is, is also doing the same thing. It's been stretched as you stride forward and then recoiling as you push off to drive the knee forward. So if the glute isn't firing up, for instance... Uh, as efficiently as it should do because mm-hmm. it's not being told to by the neurological system then you don't get the stretch in the hip flexor so what you then end up doing is using the hip flexor to pull the leg through rather than recoil and it will get very quickly tired um, and then you'll get fed up it'll get fed up with doing that job and it'll go into a spasm to try and protect itself or cramp up and then going up steps is going to accentuate that and going over, you know, lifting your leg up to go over a, a stile or something when you're walking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it could well be that. Just, it sounds definitely sounds like a hip flexor problem. Yeah. Um, whether it's coming from, um, again, you know, it links to the low back. Um, it links to what's happening with the feet and whether the glutes have been given the instruction to fire to push the hip flexor forward. Yeah. I do a really simple test when everyone comes to see me. I always test the glutes and the hamstrings and I always test the hip flexors to see whether they're strong whether they're firing up or whether they're just and often it's not that the muscle's weak it's just that it's, it's not getting a signal to tell it to work and it's, the analogy I use is rather like a light switch mm-hmm. you know the, the, the foot hitting the ground and I'm coming back to that again mm-hmm. and creating that proprioceptive stimulus is the light switch that's the switch going on and then the wiring going up to the control board which is our brain and the wires of the nerves, 
go up to the control board. The control board then sends out an instruction to the muscles to do something, which, you know, an electrical circuit with a light bulb lighting up or an appliance switching on. Yes. So you've got to have the switch on at the bottom. You've got to have the wiring intact going up to the brain. You've got to have the brain functioning well. So if someone's got a concussion um, or a neurological um, disease, sadly, something like Parkinson's or a stroke, then the control board's being affected. If a nerve's been pinched at nerve root level in the spine or biomuscle, like the piriformis, as we were saying earlier, yeah. that's going to affect the wiring, so the signal's not going to get through properly. Um, but you've got to make sure the switch is on. And that's where, again, you know, coming back to the way that our insoles function, that's their job, is that they are switching on that proprioceptive system at, at, at ground level, at floor level with the foot. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because one one of the last questions that came in was from Kevin Main Kev, at Kev Main. He said, "Is it ever anything other than weak glutes?" <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't think weak glutes is the right description or weak hip flex or whatever. You'll find, and I've had people I've tested them, and you know the simple way: if you put somebody flat on the floor in their front and just ask them to lift their leg up, keeping it straight. Yeah, is the glute firing up? Um, can you keep the leg up in there if I push down against it? Is it the hamstring working hard or the, and first, or is it the glute working hard and first? Mm-hmm. Quite often, it's a sequencing thing because of this sort of a cross wire or you know, a situation like that. And you'll find that the hamstring fires up before the glute does. So it feels like you've got a weak glute. Now, when you reorganize things and get the, um, the system firing up better, there's nothing wrong with that person's glutes. There are very few runners out there who are going to have weak glutes. Um, but what they may have is glutes that aren't being switched on at the right time or the right part of the sequence of movement. Yeah. So that's what you have to correct. So it's, it's very rarely weak anything, to be honest. It's just not being switched on. Okay. So let, let's let's come back to, to uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, We've we, this is the third in our series of podcasts. And the last one we had Dr. Peter mm. Gorman on, didn't we, who's – yeah. I mean, he's achieved some amazing things. His heart rate monitors he's produced for Polo, and you know he actually yeah. made them, didn't he? And um, and he spoke about, and I've, I've actually got, I have got the clip which I can play through my phone. I'm hoping that you can all hear. Well, everyone will be able to hear it. And and it actually related back to one of the questions that you asked during one of the sponsored hours as well. Your 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 question was, which phase of the human gait cycle do you think is most important in in injury prevention? And and mm. and you gave the options of loading phase slash ground contact number one, propulsion yeah. push off as number two, and recovery as number three. Yeah. Um, let, let me let let's just play this minute and a half from from Peter as well, and t- and talk through this, and perhaps deep dive a little bit into what these different phases are for people. Um, okay. Jogging or running. So the correction of movement in real time usually falls back to how balanced they are. And then once you become more specific, how balanced are they in each position of the foot strike cycle? As you move, your, your heel hits the ground. Your foot toes are up, your heel hits the ground. That's dorsiflexion. You come down to a moment known as pronation. You come down to a moment known as supination. You come down to a moment known as plantar flexion, and then you push off with your toe. So that that process that Dr. Peter was describing on the last on the last podcast, yeah. just just deep dive into that for me and how that and, and how that connects to everything that you're saying because these questions are all all kind of come back to this then for if if the weakness is starting at the foot rather than the, than the back yeah. for some of these injuries so so he described dorsiflexion toes are up heels down pronation yeah. supination plantar flexion so i i i, I am completely non-medicalized in my vocabulary strip it right back for me Stuart. what is dorsiflexion what is pronation? What is supination and plantar flexion? So I understand all that. Okay, so if if we take this from a person walking or heel strike running, yeah, the first thing that hits the floor is your heel, mm-hmm. and at that point, your foot, the front part of your foot's not on the floor. Your heel's on the ground. Your front part's not. Mm-hmm. So you are there in, at that point. You're in dorsiflexion. So the dorsal part of your foot, the top of your foot, is flexed towards the shin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So you heel strike, 
in that dorsiflex position, then as your momentum carries you forward, the foot comes down onto the floor, the front part of the foot comes down onto the floor, and it starts to roll in and lengthen. And that's called pronation. Okay. So that's the lengthening of the foot and the widening of the foot as you make ground contact. And the mm -hmm. purpose of pronation is to absorb shock and take the load at that point. And then as also as the tissues at the sole of the foot are stretching into pronation, they're also, what they should be doing is storing energy ready for propulsion for the next phase of the movement. Yeah. So mm -hmm. heel strike, roll in, uh, in dorsiflexion, come down into pronation as your foot rolls in. And then as your foot start to come back up off the heel, your foot starts, should start to roll out to form the arch again, which is called supination. Okay. And then as you're doing that, your heel's coming up. So now your heel is higher than your toes, and that's called plantar flexion. Okay. So you're ready for push off, and it's then the, the big toe, and in conjunction with the other toes, but the big toe mainly then contracts to create that last bit of propulsion to move forward. Mm -hmm. So we need that sequence to happen when we're walking and if we're heel strike running. If you're forefoot or midfoot or forefoot running, mm -hmm. you don't land in dorsiflexion. You land in, in slightly further forward, but still need the foot to pronate to absorb the load and the shock. Mm -hmm. And we still need it to supinate as you go into plantar flexion more for the push off. So it's slightly different. So for those people that forefoot strike or heel strike, um, you don't you don't hit in dorsiflexion, but if you're walking or heel strike running, you will do. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Good. So you so how how does training your feet and training those muscles in your feet in, impact that? Okay, so if we go back to the the heel strike movement, mm -hmm. uh, well, in fact, it, it applies to both. So when when you land, there are twenty muscles in the sole of each foot called intrinsic muscles simply means they start and finish within the foot yeah there's another variety called extrinsic muscles extrinsic muscles which come down from the lower leg wrap around the heel wrap around the ankle and the front of the foot that go down into the foot to manage dorsiflexion and plantar flexion and this tilting the foot side to side but those 20 those 20 intrinsic muscles within each foot manage the the arch and the toes okay mm -hmm. and their job is to work efficiently to control pronation and control supination and provide the shock absorbency, et cetera, et cetera. So if they're not functioning, if they're not strong enough and switched on, and I come back to that switched on thing because it may not be always about not being strong enough, but like we were saying with the glutes, they just may not be getting the neurological switch, trigger, whatever you want to call it, to activate them to do their job. And um, that's where it's so important that we have that trigger happening and make the muscles work. And most of the research that's come out over the last year or two uh, to do with things like plantar, uh, sorry, yeah, plantar fasciitis and so on, yep. the suggestion is that it's a weakness in the muscles of the foot and those intrinsic muscles. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a big move towards trying to strengthen those muscles in the sole of the foot. But again, you've got to have the switch on. So you can strengthen them by doing picking up things with your toes and lifting them cotton wool balls or fat pens or wooden spoon handles, whatever. You can do things like trying to literally drag your foot along using your toes. Yes. Make those muscles work. But if the neural system, the sensory nerve system within the tissues isn't firing up efficiently to tell them to do that, then it's not going to happen when you start to move. You might be able to do it in isolation, the same as you could do loads of glute strengthening exercises in isolation or chest strengthening exercises in isolation but unless when you start to move around we need the switch on we need the sequence of muscle engagement happening to help with the sequence of movement that we're looking for to, to run well, walk and run and move safely and efficiently yeah so that's that's the key thing do you, do you think this is something that as you think back to our evolution you know, mm -hmm. many, many years ago, we didn't have so many lovely shoes and boots and things on our feet, did we? So our, our natural yeah. foot strength would have been stronger. Yeah. Is it, has our foot strength just diminished over time as we've, as we've evolved? And it's something... Yes, I think, I think it's probably true to say, yeah. because, you know, the design of shoes for fashion and style has, to a certain extent, 
stopped the the foot from being able to function in the way that nature designed it, i.e. to to lengthen and spread on landing um, and to get stimulation. And so, of course, what happened was as people got injured when they took up sports and activities and running, people came up with the idea of, you you know, knee pain or heel pain or hip pain. We need to put some shock absorbency into the shoes and some more cushioning into the shoes and we need to support the arch. Um, well, the body's designed to do all of those things brilliantly if it can function correctly. And we've tended to sort of put these sort of sticking plaster solutions over to try and support the body, prop the body up, cushion the body, shock, provide shock absorbency, rather than saying, okay, well, let's just go back. Why isn't it working properly? Why isn't the body able to do those things itself? Which, as you say, thousands and thousands, millions of years ago, it did perfectly well with people running all over the you know, the, the deserts and forests of the world with bare feet or just a, a thin bit of animal hide to protect them. Um, yeah. And we've, we've insulated the foot against that proprioceptive information and we've, you know, gradually supported it more and more and more as, as that's gone on and stopped it from functioning as well as it should do. And there's been a movement away from that, you know, back towards allowing feet to move better within shoes and move more naturally within shoes and to try and get that stimulation. But we need it switched on. Comes back to that, Joe. Yeah, I, I, I won't, I won't go into the brands of shoes that I've got, but the comfiest ones that I've got are a, a really wide fit, and they're probably the mm. the most unfashionable looking shoes that I've got. But they're really comfy and wide, and you, you, yeah. yeah. I'm seeing, I'm seeing more and more people are coming in with wider fitting shoes now. They're, the message is getting across that you need the foot to be able to spread yeah. and on, on landing. Um, but you know, they're, they're, the messages are still going. I think I'm, I, I was talking to a running shop, running shoe shop owner, mm-hmm. and he was saying that the catalogs coming out from all the manufacturers uh, for next season shoes, running shoes, are all not all, but most of the manufacturers are now incorporating a, a zero drop. Um, Yep. wider shoe as well so they're, they're not having the heel raise they're not having the toe raise because that's the other one of the other things that happened you know when people started to get injured running and mainly it was because people started to jog which is a heel strike movement you know certainly yep. at my age um when we first had plimp soles at school they were just thin crepe soled things with no virtually no cushioning just a bit of grip on the bottom yeah. And we used to run around like mad in those in the playground, up and down, doing gymnastics, whatever. Um, you know, and go out on school, school sports day, running them. Didn't have problems. Yeah. Um, because the foot could function reasonably well in like, like that. But then gradually the shoes changed. And I think a lot of it was a suggestion. And I'm sure loads of, loads of your um, the listeners have um, read Born to Run. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a good few bits in there, a chapter or so about this whole shoe thing with a lot of people starting to take up running who weren't very fit and maybe were doing it to get fit and to lose weight, but they couldn't run with midfoot or forefoot strike. They didn't have the fitness or the strength in their feet to do that. So they started to heel strike run, which was jogging. And then they started getting injured. And um, so that's when the cushioning came in and the, the rolled heel so that people could roll down and then they curved the toe end up so they could roll through for push off. But actually, in having the toe curled up, there was a study that came out fairly recently that said that toe curl actually stops the foot from functioning properly. You can't engage the toes to give you propulsion. So you then become much more reliant on the shoe to do it for you. I see, because the toes are up off the floor, so they're not getting any information. They can't can't curl downwards to create the propulsion. The last bit to release the hamstring and to release the glutes to power you forward. Yes. So it's, you know, there's... Again, there's been there's been numerous studies about this whole support and cushioning thing. There's, there's always the soldiers that get get used in these studies. Poor old soldiers all over the world, um, <laughs> and um, they you know because there's lots of them and they're fairly easily monitored, I suppose. But you know there was a, a one done on support and cushioning, and there was there was no reduction or no 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 proof to show that the support and the cushioning was actually reducing injury risk. Mm-hmm. So the need to get the foot functioning well. Yeah. Well, there's some good tips there for strengthening your feet with the marker pens and and all yeah. kinds of things as well as well as as well as your insoles. So, you know, it's a really really funny thing here. My my dad was a, a, a physical training instructor in the Air Force. Yeah. Um, back in the fifties, and 
our entire childhood, we were incredibly lucky, our entire childhood was based around doing doing sports and activities, which we loved. Um, and he used to make us do, for you know, make up games using our toes to pick things up. You know, and he used to get us painting with our toes, yeah. you know, drawing with our toes and just, just for fun, you know, games in the garden, picking up things and throwing them with our, with our you know, picking up something and throwing it with your foot. And um, to my brother and my sister and stuff like that, and doing these silly games where we would literally have snail races where you would try and literally pull yourself along just using your toes and have a race. You know, the walking races where you, you know, you're not allowed to break into a run, are you? We, we weren't allowed to break into a step. We had to keep our feet flat on the floor, which is use our toes to pull us along. So probably, probably you get arrested for it now, but it's child cruelty. I but, bet um, you were laughing though. That sounds fun. <laughs> he was training your feet though. He knew. He, he, your dad was yeah. training your feet. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, yeah. There's lots of things that, that I recall now from my childhood, you know, growing up in put into doing all sports that he was getting us doing and coaching stuff. And, you know, he, the stuff that was current then went out of favour, but has come back into favour. Mm. Quite interesting how these things go in cyclic, yeah. cyclical, um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's 19, so he would have been trained, as I say, in 1950s. Um, and yeah. uh, then it came back round again. Right, last couple of questions was, you've got an appointment next week. Can I run on it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be that would be a no. Very good. <laughs> um, do what was the one? Uh, what were your top three go-to prehab exercises for runners? Um, that's a good one. Uh, but dy- dynamic s- stretching, I think, is you know particularly pre-event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, there's been this shift towards or away from static stretching we were all again, again funny enough this comes back to my dad used to get us doing dynamic loads of dynamic stretching and what was what stuff that became fashionable as what's called plyometrics yes um and um i would you know suggest that the prehab stuff is dynamic stretches plyometric stuff and strength work on top of your normal running mm-hmm. you know the, the, the strength training is invaluable we know that now there's so many bits of information out there try and incorporate strength training into your into your training routines try and incorporate plyometrics is the bouncing springing stuff where you you do long strides maybe see how few strides you can cover from one lamppost to the next and then four or five lampposts on see how uh, go high knee lift um, you know, bring your hands in front of you and just sort of bring your knees up to touch your hands and see how many steps you can take to do between that lamppost and the next, post, next lamppost. And then flick yeah. your heels up to your bum, see how, you know, and then do lots and lots of fast foot small steps and skipping and hopping and things like that. Just change it up a little bit, add that fast feet stuff in there, add in the strength training and add in the dynamic stretches. That's, I think, will give people a really good rounded approach to their training. That would help prevent injuries yeah cool okay Stuart, what what's your um give us your website and all your all your um socials yeah. again for people to uh, interact with you website is www.allaboutbalance.co.uk mm-hmm. and the the socials are all along the same lines all about balance on yeah. facebook and uh, instagram and um, all about balance one with no e at the end. Yeah, uh, for Twitter. And we, we'll add them. We'll add those into the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, so, so it, earlier on, you said that at the expo you had forty people out of forty-five do the tests. And you, you, your interesting point to me is that everyone, and and this is obviously because of what you do as a sports therapist and physio is that people only ever come and see you and take your advice. Or ninety nine percent of people, in my experience, only take your advice, including me, once they're already injured. Um, so, but, so my, my advice from this, from these last three podcasts that we've done together, is everyone who's listening, go and do the balance test that Stuart's described on one leg. Do it with your eyes open. Do it with your eyes closed. And if there's a difference, then start strengthening your feet and and and, and the proprioception and you, you, that you have a proprioceptive deficit at that point yeah yeah to ch- train your balance the test the test becomes the training yes um, also listen to the previous two podcasts we'll put them in the two show notes so the first podcast we did was was with dr susie cooper who completely ruptured her plantar fasciitis didn't she Stuart? and then recovered yeah. from it um 
Um, listen to the blog with um, Dr. Peter Gorman, um, inventor of heart rate monitors, who, who also gave lots of brilliant advice. And, um, and check out Stuart's blogs on, on the website, all about balances. There's all sorts of good information for runners on there, um, on, on, on you know, on some specific injuries and, and other bits and bobs. As a, as a compliment to you, Joe, I just, I've got to pass on Peter's message. He, he emailed me a little bit after and said he absolutely loved the doing the podcast and he said he, he would be well up for, for doing another one at any time. Well, he, he, was, he was great. Everton, Everton yeah. knowledgeable. That's very nice of him. And yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. I mean, apart from the heart rate thing, he's, he's the designer of the Optigate system, which is now being used in all of the major sports organizations in the States and other areas of the world for all of the athletes to put through these tests that he's devised on this Optigate system. And, not just testing. He, this is one of the things that I like about the way he works is that testing isn't enough. So it doesn't matter what, uh, you know, I'm going to finish off with this one if you don't mind. Yeah. It doesn't matter which system you get your gait tested on if you get a gait test, mm-hmm. whether it's force plates, whether it's 3D gait motion things, whether it's the Optigate system, whatever it is, ask them to test you after the product or training shoe that they say is the one for you. Because that's the key. It's no good just testing somebody and telling them what's, what's wrong. And what a lot of the, the these gate systems do is they, they'll give you that, in, that data and say, right, this is the training shoe. We have a database of, you know, goodness knows how many thousand shoes and, and people mm-hmm. for whom this shoe has been the one. Well, that's great. But what about that individual that you're testing? How do we know that it's going to be the right one for that person? And what we want to know is, is it going to make a difference to them and the difference between their left leg and their right leg or left foot and their right foot in their movement? It's an individual thing. So retest them afterwards. So if that gait assessment doesn't allow for a retest that shows whether the shoe actually improves your gait parameters, step length, contact time, flight time, all of these different things that are to do with gait movement, then how do you know? And that's what we were able to do that with the gate system. That's what Peter Gorman, Dr. Gorman, you know, came up with his system. Because he wanted to be able to show people and, and demonstrate the before and after. Has the change made a positive a difference? Yes. yes. Or no. and if haven't, that's not the product for you, whether it's an orthotic or a, a training shoe or an insole, midfoot control shoe or a pronation shoe or, you know, whatever shoe. Mm-hmm. Zero drop, minimal heel strike, whatever. It doesn't matter. If it doesn't improve your gait... Then it's not the right shoe for you. Yeah. It might be the right shoe for a thousand other people, but it doesn't mean it's the right shoe for you. Yeah. And if they won't do that for free, then why would you go in the first place? Yeah. It's yeah, it's very interesting because all the tests happen before, don't they? Mm. <laughs> That's what yeah. 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 How do we know it's made a difference? Mm. And being comfortable isn't enough. You know, there's a there's there was a a podcast I saw a while ago or an article about saying, you know, forget all the gate tests you get in a running shoe shop. They're useless. Um just put the shoe on and if it's comfortable it's probably going to be the best way of telling well i've got to say that's slightly insulting to a lot of people but it also isn't true because you could have the most comfortable trainer in the world but it may not improve your gait hopefully it will do you you want obviously you want the shoe to be comfortable that's a you know it's a statement of the flipping obvious isn't it but <laughs> you, want, you want the shoe to actually improve your gait or you know be equal to your natural barefoot gait if it doesn't then however comfortable it is, it's not the right one for you. So comfort alone isn't enough. Yeah. It's, does it improve your gait? Get it retested. Yeah, and it's kind, it's kind of a given nowadays as well. You expect your shoe to be comfortable, don't you? Yeah. No matter, yeah, no matter exactly. what it is. Stuart, thanks ever so much. Uh, it, another another brilliant chat. And I know we're going to be doing some more Q&As and stuff, aren't we, over the over the coming months? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thanks ever so much for your time. And, um, That's an absolute pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Cheers, Stuart. I'll speak to you soon.